Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm Patrick Riley. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Bayer, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, about his new book, Beyond the Usual Beating, The John Burge Police Torture Scandal and Social Movements for Police Accountability in Chicago, released in April by the University of Chicago Press. In its pages, Bayer describes how Burge and other Chicago police officers insulated their routine torture of suspects from public knowledge or internal review for over a decade. After the torture was publicly disclosed, a socially and ideologically diverse movement slowly cohered to demand that Burge and others be held accountable. It is at once a history of state secrecy and grassroots activism that demonstrates the culture of police impunity and the difficulties of coalition building activism. Well, thank you, Andy, so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk about the book. Um, and I, so I, I think I'll begin by asking you how you came to choose such a grim and uh, important topic. Great. Thank you, Patrick. It's a really a pre- pleasure to be here and to participate in this great web series you guys have. Um, yeah, so how do I get started on this? Well, <clears throat> It's such a difficult question to answer. I think anyone who's written dissertations or even master's theses uh, kind of comes to the project in all kinds of ways. Uh, the easy way to explain it is that I was interested uh, in an undergraduate level in the civil rights movement, but I was uh, in school in the American South. I went to Daytona Beach Community College uh, and I had an excellent professor there that studied the civil rights movement. Then I went to the University of Florida. And so when I decided to go to graduate school, I applied to schools all across the country in the South and the North and the West Coast. Uh, and well, I ended up going to uh, into Chicago first for a, a master's degree at U of Chicago and then to Northwestern. And so now that I'm in Chicago, uh, still interested in writing about the civil rights movement, I'm getting a little better grasp of what historiography is and how academia really works. So understanding that, uh, right, you have to have some sort of original approach to the scholarship. You have to help uh, answer questions that have been raised by other scholars, drive the scholarship in its fresh directions. And obviously this uh, long civil rights movement theory um, was dominant. And so the idea is we need to look either before 1954 or maybe after 1968 or look outside the South or look outside the parameters of uh, you know movements to uh, end Jim Crow or to bolster voting rights. And so it seemed like, well, I'm, what I want to do uh, is study the city that I'm in, because I thought that was a sort of practical, strategic decision there to be able to access archives and collections and and eventually oral history interviews in the city that I'm working in. So I thought, well, I'm going to do Chicago. Uh, I'm more interested in the more recent past, um, even though that was daunting in, in ways I could go into as well. So I thought, let's go after 1970, Chicago, civil rights. And so what issues am I going to look at? And policing loomed large uh, in this in the public memory and in the scholarship uh, and in the, in the documents and the sources. And then I got to give ultimate credit. Maybe I should just started here. I got to give credit to my advisor, Martha Biondi at Northwestern, because when I sat with her 
you know, that first week of grad school, maybe even before I started when I went to her office and talked to her and I was all nervous and eager and, you know, ignorance of what I was about to get myself into in a PhD. And when I started talking to her about, I'm going to do race, policing, Chicago, well, she goes, well, okay, you're going to do John Burge. (laughs) I mean, I remember her saying it almost like that, like she had just decided for me. Um, But I mean that in in a great way because she, um, helped me overcome some fears of doing such a contemporary project. You know, it's, it's, it's so recent. Um, in, when I got to Northwestern in 2009, there was a great deal of Burge related materials making the front pages of the Chicago Tribune and the Sun-Times and it's, uh, other, you know, local periodicals. And so I knew I'd be wait, waving or excuse me, wading into something that was not just historically contentious, but that was um, controversial and provocative, you know, in the present day. And, and although I didn't know it at the time, soon John Burge would be, uh, headed to a, a federal trial in downtown Chicago. So I was able to go watch him testify. And I was able, of course, to be a participant observer in all kinds of social movement activities that unfolded virtually the entire time I was there from 09 to 2016. Um, and so it was very uh, daunting. It was a little scary to work on something so contemporary, but I think that it was also quite rewarding that I was able to engage in contemporary actors. Um, and of course, it's also proven quite timely now that the dissertation's done, I think it um, it helped me in a in a difficult job market to be working on race and policing. And of course, now the book is coming out in the midst of a very um, unique social climate in 2020. Absolutely, uh, it could it could seldom have been more timely. You make a good point about the kind of participant observation, ethnography, oral oral history component about your project, which I'd like to discuss a little bit more. Was that, you know, tracking down actors who are still alive, uh, people like Flint Taylor and people at the, at the, at the people's law office and, and, and others, was that a choice that you made after looking at some of the documents or was that an early component of the project? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess, <clears throat> Methodologically speaking, and I think a lot of listeners who are academics would relate, you know, you kind of get thrown into the dissertation writing process. Um, It's hard to train someone in a very concrete, clear fashion, right? Uh, Historical research is kind of trial and error, just kind of get out there and and do it. Uh, Not that we didn't get trained, and I did have some excellent instructors, of course, uh, and and, uh, mentors. Um, But when I got into this, you know, first you just tackle one thing at a time. You know, I started with uh, a series of uh, journalistic accounts, particularly those of a, a excellent journalist named John Conroy, who worked for the Independent Chicago Reader throughout the 80s and 90s uh, and into 2000s. And he's probably the first real voice in the public sphere that's uh, crafting a narrative of the John Police, John Burge police torture scandal. Um, and he still remains a foremost expert on this topic. And so I perused all of his materials and then just started go to stuff. You know, it's like um, more than I was trying to find people to interview, it was just oh, uh, often Martha Biondi uh, would tell me or others would say, hey, there's an event. Uh, people are going to have a, I don't know, like a sit-in at City Hall or there's a, a teach-in at a uh, community center or a church on the South Side. So I just go to events, go to protest rallies, workshops. And from there, you're just introducing yourself to people, mostly activists, including a lot of uh, torture survivors, a lot of, of the attorneys working for the People's Law Office, principally Flint Taylor, as you mentioned, and Joey Mogul and others. Uh, and most of my interviews were informal. I mean, I, I did sit with people for formal 
oral history interviews using the best practices and methods that I learned in my oral history seminar at Northwestern. But much of it was just talking to people, taking notes. Um, and then it was only much later once I got into some archives that I, and I got kind of more of the story under my belt and knew what it was I wanted to to talk to these people about that I set up the interviews. And I, you know, I, I'm sure everyone's done this uh, in similar ways. Other people can do it in their own way. Like these methods are quite idiosyncratic, but um, I didn't want to sit with Flint Taylor and have him tell me about, um, you know, who was John Burge, you know, give me the John Burge story, which he's, you know, I could, he's published so much on that. I could find it elsewhere. I didn't want to talk to the torture survivors so much about their particular experience of torture, because a lot of the, I don't know. How do I say this? A lot of the torture survivors who have a public, uh, sorry, they're like out in the open and they're well-known and they often give these public speeches. So they start to give kind of rote uh, testimonials that they've given time and time again. So right, I didn't need to get that interview from them. So once I had, you know, a lot of, of the outline of what I was going to do and even some of the writing done, then it was, you know, you start to find the gaps like, oh, wow, there's this moment here in, I don't know, 1982 or the process through which the activists actually got Burge fired in 1990. Well, it was a long process that took place over several years and ends in 93. But there's just these moments where like, well, I didn't understand this. So that's who I'm going to talk to someone like Mary Powers from Citizens Alert. Like, I'm going to ask her this specific question. And then, of course, as you know, you're also asking um, participants and, you know, real historical figures, you're asking them more of their impression, you know, um, you know, have them describe the setting, you know, because it's fun to hear these people what comes out of their mind when you say, what was it like when you first, uh, like Flint Taylor, what was it like when you first sat with a, a deposition with John Burge where he, you know, just pled the fifth, but you know, what was the atmosphere like in the room? And I got a lot of incredible anecdotal stories, most of which never made it anywhere into my writings, not in the book at all. Some of which even that the, um, my interview subjects told me, ah, just keep it off the record, but it helped deeply inform. It was kind of like what journalists call that, background, that deep background. So get a little greater sense of what, I don't know, like what spirit that John Burge brought to in a deposition. What was it like to be in the room with him? Um, and so, yeah, I guess the short answer to that is just my process through interviews was quite informal and haphazard. And if I were to do it again, I think I would um, be more preemptive, more organized and, uh, cataloging who I'd like to interview. I think I would have done a lot more interviews. Um, I think as a, as a graduate student writing a dissertation, there were so many competing demands on your time from teaching to just, you know, surviving the mental health crises that is being a grad student. Um, and also trying to demonstrate to your advisors and your peers that you can do the real traditional elements of like archival research, um, where I, I probably should have spent more time, I think, doing oral history interviews in, uh, in the second project. I think I'll reshuffle the sources in terms of priority and emphasize oral histories more. But I really wanted to demonstrate my uh, archival bona fides, which was a little bit of a challenge for a project on such a recent topic, because at first I panicked for several years that there were no archives. Um, and then you just get a little clever. You get a little lucky. Right. I find that I found a lot of stuff related to Burge, uh, Burge's life, even though he was nowhere in the documents, but I was able to find archival material on like the schools that he went to when he was a kid or on the Trumbull Park uh, housing riots of the 1950s that unfolded within a mile and a half of his home. And then I was able to be very lucky that with the abolition of the death penalty in Illinois in 2011, uh, the co I'm going to botch this name if I'm not careful, the Illinois Coalition Against the Death Penalty released their papers 
to the uh, University of Illinois at Chicago Special Collections, this Citizens Alert police watchdog group that looms large in my story. Their uh, papers were given to UIC as well. And miraculously, uh, the staff at UIC Special Collections made these collections available in you know record time. So, you know, there were massive, you know, I, I don't know the, the linear feats of the, of the collections, but they, they were quite large. And all that material was not available when I started this project in 2009. But by the time I'm really getting into the meat of the writing by 2012, 2013, I have access to all these sources. So that helps at least assuage my kind of anxieties that my PhD in history wasn't archival enough. And I, I feel comfortable now saying that it is. Not that, you know, I realize now as an assistant professor, I don't think uh, people are necessarily combing through your work and, you know, counting how many sources you have from the archives. But it's something you kind of worry about when you're a graduate student. As far as the, the the archival component of the uh, of the project goes, you know you mentioned the, the citizens alert records, which the the UIC special collections has a wealth of of records about different grassroots um, activist efforts, especially around policing. And I mean, in, in my own experience working with some of those records with with other groups, I found it difficult to pin down the kind of class composition of the of, of some of these neighborhood groups because often, you know, they advertise themselves as, you know, we're, we're multiracial, multi-class, making these kind of like legitimizing claims that they speak for the community. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that these groups did so in a cynical way, but I'm, I'm wondering if you... Like when you're when you were trying to kind of give a sociological portrait of these groups, um, did you run into any obstacles, or was the information right there? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And in fact, it sounds like a question that only someone who's gone through some of this material would be able to raise. So that's cool that you did that. I think, um, yeah, I grappled with about how to characterize these groups. Right, it's one thing to be able to find some, um, you know, a lot of these organizations they have like a, a ten year anniversary or a twenty five year anniversary where they write their own history. Or their history is accounted in you know, a, a Chicago Tribune profile of, of an activist or something. Um, but when you really want to like characterize who they are, and you're right, they they often will announce themselves like like just like you said, you know, we're multi generational, multiracial, uh, grassroots. But you know, I, I think it's not too controversial to say that we use the word grassroots maybe flippantly. We might not always agree with what we mean when we use that word, and I think it's. Um, it's important for a community organization to, to frame themselves as grassroots, but then that raises interesting kind of conceptual questions about who is the grassroots. Uh, and, and sometimes these organizations, it's difficult to tell who's, who's doing the bulk of the work, uh, whose name is just on the masthead. Um, you know, who do they truly represent? I think the organization that I struggled with the most with that was Citizens Alert, which is probably the group that I uh, spent the most time with kind of, not, not in a concrete way. Uh, I just meant like in my, in, in my headspace, right? And in my research and brainstorming and in the shower and in the car when you're just grappling over these ideas. Um, Citizens Alert and, of course, the People's Law Office. But uh, yeah, I think with Citizens Alert, the class dynamic was probably white middle class. Um, you know, they were the Lakeshore liberals. Um, you know, I think I have a quote from Flint Taylor saying, you know, describing Mary Powers, who was a white woman from the North Shore. Uh, who's 
you know, as a suburban suburban warrior for social justice. I mean, she had been a um, a self-described, quote, like Eisenhower housewife uh, who was a Republican voter who was kind of radicalized by her experience walking through the ruins of the Fred Hampton apartment uh, in December 1969. It was actually quite a common radicalizing moment um, amongst particularly white college students, white professionals and middle class, but of course, also black people in the South side and the West side and throughout Chicago um, who experienced the Fred Hampton murder um, as a moment of awakening uh, akin to some of the things we've seen in the, in the recent past here. Um, and I, so I, th- I think I struggled a bit um, to describe this group, but not to mention it, it evolves over time and we can't always trust the sources. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it, 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 it raises something that I think a lot of other scholars of this of social movements are grappling with. How much, you know, how can we describe, you know, set aside analysis and interpretation, but I would even describe the makeup of an organization um, that is also deliberately trying to frame itself in, in a very progressive um, fashion, whether it's in during the new left of the late 60s or if it's in the 2010s, um, where we see white activists self-consciously, not always, but often self-consciously try to sidestep uh, um, being front and center to to try to uh, elevate the voices of marginalized peoples. I mean, in the Chicago torture justice movement, it's, you know, begins sometime in the late eighties, if not earlier, and and is still around today. Um, We see self-conscious efforts by, white middle-class and black middle-class activists to make sure that they foreground the voices of torture survivors, their families, many of whom uh, are, do come from a working class or poor background, um, which I applaud and sort of uh, support politically. My political sympathies are to do that as well, but it can kind of tricky just as an historian to truly understand like who's doing the day-to-day work um, of a social movement organization. And I don't think I get, in my book into that fine degree of detail. Uh, so some of that is left a little unsaid, uh, perhaps because it's left a bit unknown. I, I think that would be a, another avenue for more rounds of oral history interviews if uh, the participants are still alive. On the point of citizens alert, you you just you kind of describe their their organizing and, and activism as at least in the beginning well, no, I think you could. I think you could say, for most of their existences, you know, by their own admission, they were interested in advocating for police reform through somewhat conventional political channels. You know, going to um, going to the Chicago Police Board meetings, speaking at City Hall, um, maybe holding holding teach-ins sometimes. Um, but you do also mention that they scolded or criticized groups that maybe took more confrontational uh, strategies. I'm wondering if you can talk about how their organizing tactics evolved over time, if they did, and some of the kind of disagreements that were occurring within the Chicago uh, police torture justice movement. Yeah, great question. First, I have to make it clear that there is nothing... There's no organization or group that's called the Chicago, Chicago Torture Justice Movement. I, I hope uh, I make it clear in a few moments in the book that that's the name that I've, uh, I've applied to this 
evolving coalition uh, that has involved many other individuals and groups and has changed over time, et cetera. And I'm really just borrowing from the language of the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials, CTGM, CTJM, who has been instrumental in all kinds of efforts to commemorate uh, the torture crisis and also win reparations and many other things. Um, and so when I refer to the Chicago Torture Justice Movement, I'm talking about a loose, never really formalized network of activists uh, who fought along various lines to win justice and relief for torture victims, whether it's in the courts, in state legislatures, uh, through the city council, the reparations or commemoration, getting officers fired, getting uh, special prosecutors appointed, and on and on, long lists of, of activities, uh, including those that were circulating around the anti-death penalty movement. Um, and in that, in that loose affiliated coalition of activists and organizations, you're going to see a great range of ideologies, um, methods. You're going to see a division of labor. So the People's Law Office and the Death Row 10, a group of, of uh, state prisoners who were on death row, who were united around a shared experience of torture under birds. These groups all have different ideas, different strategies, methods, goals, etc. Um, and Citizens Alerts, looms large in my story because they're really there at most of the stages of this story and because they have this large um, archival collection. Um, and I would characterize Citizens Alert as more of a moderate organization. I mean, it's founded by a small group of white middle-class professionals, um, lawyers, preachers and ministers, et cetera, um, who live in the suburbs and feel that they can wield their privilege in support of, of poor and particularly African-American uh, defendants, like people who have been arrested. So they come to their aid and provide services. But that organization is going to change greatly over time. But in the 1970s, Citizens Alert is really fighting for um, like federal funds. And so at one point they get their first real um, ongoing source of money through the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, the LEAA, which is usually talked about by historians and journalists in a very, like in a villainized way, like the LEAA is a villainized organization or um, a, a, an agency that helped fuel money to local law enforcement to militarize the police and fight um, pernicious wars on drugs and wars on crime. And that is an accurate depiction. But we also see that the LEAA provided a, a, a great deal of money to um, alternative law enforcement organizations like, you know, like um, the YMCA or Alcoholics Anonymous uh, or Citizens Alert. So they get, uh, you know, it's not, it's a modest amount of money compared to what the police are getting. Are there police departments getting millions locally, billions nationally? Uh, Citizens Alert gets, you know, a couple $10,000 here or there, but that's a massive amount of money for a group that had been operating on a shoestring budget with, you know, volunteers and uh, donations. So they get that money. It allows them to have a full-time staff. It allows them to have a storefront. And so most of the 70s, the Citizens Alert is just a, uh, like a, it's a word I'm looking for, like a, well, it's a, it's a location where people can get information on how to hold police accountable. It's a place where those people in Chicago who had suffered from some sort of indignity or violence from the police or harassment or some unethical or legal behavior by the police, they can go to Citizens Alert and get information, uh, get access to who they can contact us to file a complaint with the police. They can get access to lawyers if they need them. So it's like a clearinghouse for information and services. But it's not a militant organization. Um, it's it's not in the same vein of um, kind of the Black Panther Party's 
demands for community control of policing for um, kind of ending police as we know it. And we can trace that lineage all the way to the present uh, debates over defunding the police or outright abolition. I mean, the, the citizens Lord are very dedicated, uh, committed, uh, courageous uh, activists. And within citizens Lord, there are going to be a range of opinions too. Right? They don't speak with one voice, but for the most part, they are interested in reform, you know, helping to, you know, ends like pernicious uh, high-speed chase policies of the police department or to get, remove shotguns from the um, the dashboard of police cruisers to make sure they're put in the trunk instead or something, right? So it's a lot of reform measures and also just a place where um, people can get together and speak to a sympathetic person about their experience and get directed to where they can get help. Um, and so uh, throughout the 70s, because they get this LEAA money, they start to nurture relationships with various police superintendents and mayors. So they start to kind of enter, you know, these official circles and channels that can get the head of the um, Office of Professional Standards, this OPS, this, um, it's, it's, it's an alternative to a civilian review board that, uh, of course, is not at all a civilian review board. It's a total like whitewash machine for the police. It's headquartered in the superintendent's office. But OPS is a there's a channel where you can complain to the police or, or the police board's another example that you mentioned. They could go to the monthly police board meeting. So the directors of the police board, the, the director of OPS, they, they knew who Mary Powers and other people, Ruth Wells and Gladys Lewis, they knew who these people were from Citizens Alert. So they get them on the phone. And that's a good development for Citizens Alert's efforts to help hold police accountable. But it also helps in subtle ways kind of co-op some of the more militant spirit of a Citizens Alert because now they you know, need to maintain professional and courteous relationships with, you know, like the elite people that run the city. And so by the time that the Burge scandal really hits the front pages in 1989, and as Citizens Alert is helping coordinate efforts to get John Burge fired, uh, there still feels some, you know, some pressure not to completely alienate the OPS, or, you know, they might not want to march on Mayor Daly's house, right? Not that they're friendly with Mayor Daly, like far from it. They absolutely see Daly as a an oppositional figure. Um, but because of those networks, because of those relationships, and also I think kind of because of the, you know, how do I say this? Maybe the demeanor and natural kind of, I don't know, disposition of Citizens Alert's leadership at various times, they're sort of disinclined to be too confrontational. So there are moments in this fight to get birds fired, for example, in the early 90s, where they butt heads with some of the more militant activists that want to, um, you know, raise the specter of the LA riots in 92 as a potential pressure point on the city, where a citizens alert feels that's perhaps a step too far. Uh, and although I do spend a great deal of time and energy writing about citizens alert, frankly, my sympathies are probably more with the militant groups, right? I don't really have any qualms with uh, sending protesters outside the mayor's house. But, um, you know, we see even today, there's a great deal of conflict and debate uh, amongst activists on the the left, the progressive liberals or the more militant radicals, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but I, I find that in the Spurge story, though, I think most of these debates were subsumed for a greater good, never totally derailed momentum of the movement. Um, and I think they accomplished a great deal. Right? They, they understood that they had a shared common goal, which is to stop torture and hold police accountable for it. One thing that stuck out to me when I was reading this book in the midst of, you know, everything that's been going on is that you're correct that the LEAA funded 
a diverse array of alternative criminal justice kind of groups and initiatives, uh, some of which I've studied in my own work. And the crazy thing is a lot of those, a lot of those groups that were funded by the LEAA in the late seventies or early eighties were in my mind, the, the groups that kind of fought for the reforms that in our moment are now being challenged. So it was just very interesting to me to watch and or or to read about you know these decades long struggles for these reforms that now many activists and you know perhaps uh, perhaps some of us in, in this conversation right now think uh, you know are are inadequate and and just to just to see how long it took to even institute those reforms that we think are tame. Yeah, this is good. Before we even get to your question, I want to interject because uh, I, I totally. Appreciate what you're saying, and I, I, I'm curious to know what your work's going to, you know, how you're going to address these issues in your work, and what direction you're going. Because I think that's just such an important point that we have to recognize in 2020 is that you know the police have always been under reform. Every single era of the police history is a reform era. I mean, maybe other scholars of, of the police might disagree with me on certain points of that, but you know, I've taught some classes on the history of the police, and it's really just every generation there is a you know, like a reform impulse, whether it's coming from the streets, whether it's coming from politicians outside the police, or it's coming from progressive-minded police administrators like August Vollmer or O.W. Wilson, who, you know, runs the Chicago police in the 60s, or many, many others all the way to the present day. Uh, and if it's, it should have been made clear decades, generations ago, and it, and it was made clear to many people, clearly the, you know, the Black Panther Party and, and, and dozens of other organizations, um, many of them were not as radical or militant as the Panthers. They would have said the same thing. Right, the reform doesn't work. This is an institution, the police, that cannot be reformed. Uh, uh, it, it does not operate in ways that you know advance justice for virtually anyone. Uh, and so, while we still need to be um, cognizant of ways that we could kind of reduce harm on a day-to-day basis through reform, um, I hope that this moment, twenty twenty, demonstrates that you know today's reforms are just going to be you know tomorrow's failures when it comes to police. And as, as, as much as I admire Citizens Alert and, and see them as you know, heroes in this story, you know, even where I'm not really in the hero making business as in a story, which I think you get my point. My sympathies are clearly with these, these group. And I, and I was inspired by um, these people who fought for police accountability and reform in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But your point is, is apt. And I really appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> you know, when Citizens Alert moved the shotgun, or you know, when the Afro American Patrolmen's League in Chicago, I think they probably get more credit for this. So move the shotgun off the dashboard and into the trunk. Well, that's great, but you know, maybe we could get rid of the shotgun altogether, or you know, I mean, use it as a metaphor. I'm sure I get some of that history wrong, um, but you know, body cameras are great, but you know, the body camera is still on the chest of a police officer who's you know responding to a drunk driver in a Wendy's drive-through. So yeah, he's got the body camera, but Right. It's it's the institution that needs to be changed, not these little mealy mouth reforms around the margins. But I don't think many people listening to me uh, on this are going to disagree with that. I feel like we'd be hard pressed to convince members of the general public to go into some special collections reading rooms and see if the reforms they're suggesting worked out. Well, see, I wish we could do that because, you know, I, you see so much today, journalists and Barely educated people, and uh, what you know, just so amazed by all this, right? Um, sure, not you or I, and probably many people that are listening to this, but 
so many people are just like, this is a, an issue that's either, if not new to 2020, right? It's new to, you know, 2000, you know, it's Trayvon Martin forward or Oscar Grant forward. It's like before this, you know, they might remember Rodney King, but it's still, there's a lot of like discovery right now. Um, and so a lot of these reforms, it seemed like a great idea. Why don't we hire more black officers? That is a good idea. And there, we, we know through empirical evidence, that there's a certain tipping point where hiring more black officers can actually, you know, reduce some harm. But, you know, hiring black police officers or putting black faces in high places in the head of the departments or in the mayor's office, this is not a panacea for police violence. So, uh, you know, to, to see people say, well, we should try this. That's a great idea. Let's try this or that. It's like, well, okay, well, we've tried this for decades and decades. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to fight for reform. And I'm glad that there's still a division of labor as those are demanding abolition of the police or, you know, of radical restructuring of the whole institution itself. Or, you know, that's great. Um, I'm pleased that we have also people fighting ref- for reform and they, all these things are going on. You know, all the levers are being pulled at once. And you know, if we can reduce harm for a while before we completely end it, uh, that would be progress, too. Carceral state historiography of the last decade or so is is trying to elucidate the role that that police have played in society they kind of objectively exist to you know quell popular unrest rebellion calls for calls for resource redistribution and beyond and i think that's what why i was very interested in your attention to john burge's Personal racism and the, the 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 racism that kind of percolated in the area two headquarters on the south side of Chicago because I think the trend has been to just point out structural racism and kind of um, dispense with any question of officers' personal beliefs because I think many of the scholars um, you know have a kind of abolitionist analytic and they and they see they see officers personal beliefs as kind of uh relatively inconsequential but for but but in the first half of your book when you're trying to kind of explain how this torture happened and how the cover-ups happened you you actually you you did a lot of work kind of explaining Birch's background his you know his proximity to anti-black violence and white rioting around integration in the 50s and also talk you talk about all the incredibly horrible things that he you know said to his colleagues the culture of racism that that was present in the area two headquarters and i'm wondering when did you know or how did you kind of choose to make that uh, a central part of your argument Oh, yeah, this is a good question because, you know, this was really one of the central conundrums I dealt with throughout the process. Because on one hand, I wanted to narrate the story. In a, well, first of all, I'll just be honest. On a practical level, I wanted the book to be readable to some degree, which is can be challenging to turn a dissertation, publish it in an academic press and still have it have some sort of appeal to a potential general audience maybe in Chicago that's interested in the Burge cases. So I wanted some narrative form to some degree. And so biography helps narrative. And I wanted to narrate Burge's life as best as I could without having access to him because he was, you know, he declined to ever speak to me or really any other researchers, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, but the risk there 
is, I think, twofold. One, chapter one, where I describe Burge's upbringing and the kind of white fears on the south side of Chicago of deindustrialization and black migration and transition to neighborhoods and rising crime rates. And then describing Burge's milieu uh, in his public schools that he went to that went through desegregation crises, uh, really just white, massive white resistance to, you know, bringing black students in. And of course, his Vietnam experience. So I, I, all of that, I remember talking to a a student during a grad student workshop. um, We're just like, well, are you apologizing for Birch? Like, is this, is this chapter an an apologia? Um, And so I had to go through and try to make sure that, of course, that was far from what I wanted to do, but I wanted to explain this man, right? To say that John Birch was just an evil racist asshole just doesn't, you know, that's not, that's not useful to us as historians. Um, But I also had to be careful not to suggest that a person who grows up in that time and place kind of naturally becomes a torturer, uh, right? Because, you know, there are tens of thousands and maybe far more than that, you know, white students that grew up on the south side of Chicago who went to uh, schools that were being desegregated, who went to Vietnam and they didn't all become police torturers, right? In fact, and I'm going to, I'm going to name drop here because I thought this was cool. I, I got a call, you know, uh, and I'm easily starstruck uh, last week from, uh, the film director of the movie, The Fugitive, Andrew Davis. <laughs> and he calls me and he goes, hey, this is Andrew Davis. I directed The Fugitive, which was <laughs> funny that he announced himself like that. Uh, I actually knew exactly who it was right away. I love that movie. The point is he tell- he read the book and he grew up with Burge. Uh, and I-, I had known that and-, and-, and considered contacting him, but I didn't know how a grad student contacts like a Hollywood film director. Um, and it didn't seem like necessary, but uh, anyway, so... He grows up with Burge, goes to school in elementary and high school with him. And so I'm talking to him and I, you know, just like saying, you know, I thought about using him in the book and a few other people that I, there are actually some of Burge's childhood friends that I actually did talk to. Because you got to highlight the idea that Andrew Davis grows up in the same neighborhood, goes through many of the same experiences. And he's from all I can tell is a very progressive and open and interesting guy who didn't go into the police department and torture people. So it's like, so I like you used a word I wish I had used better. You said um, I described Burge's proximity to these events. And I think that's as close as I could do. Right? I could say that Burge grew up in the shadows of Trumbull Park, but I can't claim that he was out there throwing rocks. And I don't claim and there's no evidence of that. And I'm fairly confident that he wasn't doing that at seven years old. Um, but certainly he was drawing lessons about the nature of, of a threat that black people pose to his community. Um, he was learning lessons about the role of police, what role they should play to protect white prerogatives uh, in the city and, and et cetera. So it was a challenge. Uh, and the other difficulty I had with foregrounding Burge, which I, I'll defend doing. I mean, we, I think we kind of refer to this as the Burge torture scandal. And again, I think it has a certain narrative utility to foreground Burge's life and career. And he is the foremost kind of leader of this group of detectives. But Dozens of other detectives were involved, not only at Area 2, but we could, we could get the, the torture problem in Chicago was far larger in scope and scale uh, and geography than just Burge and his men, his group of rogue cops. And obviously, this is a theme that anyone writing about police violence, or even a casual observer of this issue, knows that we need to stop thinking of this as some rogue cop. It's not a bad apple. That's, and so I hope that it comes through throughout the book, particularly in the introduction and throughout um, that I'm not saying this is a story about a bunch of bad cops. I mean, this was a, a system that facilitated torture. It encouraged it. Uh, actors up and down the, or not up and down is probably the wrong way, but throughout the Cook County criminal justice system, they benefited, 
benefited a great deal from what Burge and his men were doing coercing confessions. Um, and so, yes, it's a systemic story here. This is institutional racism. But I also wanted to show that like, when we talk about institutional racism, we don't want to lose sight that some of these guys are just racist pricks. These are racist men performing their discretion in racist ways. And I borrow heavily throughout the book from Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleve's book, Crook County, which she obviously did this ethnographic research in Cook County amongst prosecutors at uh, 26 in California, the courthouse. And she repeatedly tells us, look, this is a racist system. But part of why it's a racist system is because there's all these racist people in control of it. Um, and so as much as this, there, there is systemic racism and we have to focus on that, but we can't do that to the point where we write out the bad acts of racist men and women because they're there. You know, John Burge operates in a racist system, but he is a racist man. Um, we know this by the language they use. We know this by the way they defend their actions, etc. And so one person that really pushed against me on this idea of focusing so much on Burge was actually Joey Mogul of the People's Law Office, really just a brilliant uh, attorney who I, I'm inspired by to a great deal. And she was principally involved in all kinds of actions to hold Burge and his men accountable, win justice and relief for survivors. She's the author of the Chicago Police Torture Reparations Ordinance that was passed in 2015. And I interviewed Mogul and I give her the very last word in my book. I think the second to last sentence before I say some kind of trite <laughs> concluding sentence. Uh, and I paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but Joey said something like, you know, what really bothers me about this story is that it's all about Burge. Let's not pretend that, you know, this was just a story of, you know, a couple, you know, racist guys. But no, this is a story of a racist system and a racist city that just doesn't care about uh, police accountability. And, and she goes then and now. Uh, so she, she was a little like, uh, you know, frustrated with the way that this story keeps being told uh, around birds. And so I don't believe that I probably satisfied her. I mean, I gave her the last word, but, you know, it, the book title uh, it still has John Burge in it. Um, and I think part of that, as I said, it was sort of a, there's a practical element to that. Um, first, as a graduate student trying to, this is a little crass to admit this, but you, you kind of need to, I don't want to say monopolize, but you kind of have to plant your flag on a subject, right? And so when I'm writing about Burge as a completely unknown graduate student, you know, there's other people writing on birds. So I needed to make sure that like my title of my dissertation and my, um, you know, my uh, conference papers and my journal submissions and whatever, like have kind of John Burge in the title. So people know oh, there's a guy at Northwestern working on Burge. Um, and then now that I'm, you know, a virtually unknown assistant professor in Alabama, it's still the same thing, right? I just kind of needed to claim that Burge territory and not just as a, in a possessive fashion, but also just so that other young scholars don't, you know, get eight steps down the road of a Burge dissertation only to see that my book came out and maybe they're now um, worried or upset that they, you know, need to go in another direction. I probably worry about that too much, but I think those are the kinds of things you think about as a grad student when you're trying to, you know, stake claim to a historical territory. And so that, I think, helped push me rightfully or wrongfully to make sure that John Burge was in the title. You mentioned the Van Cleve book, which which I'm very fascinated uh, about how you you know how how you wove that into your your, your documentary analysis, um, especially since it you know since since you are doing very recent history, and I'm you know uh, one thing that I think you do very well is just give a very detailed account of 
the variety of ways that police officers, state attorneys, and judges collude with each other or cover each other's backs or look the other way. There's an understanding in within the general public, I think, certain publics and and the academic world that police secrecy and police impunity is endemic. We 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 know it exists, but we don't really know how it happens. And there's so many, you know, different ways to cover up um violence and you know what uh, what what attorneys would call custodial abuse and you, you know, went through, you know, reams and reams of court cases, um, which, you know, I'd like to ask you about that as well. And you, and you talk about the street files that police withheld from, um, you know, def- uh, defense attorneys uh, when, you know, Brady v. Maryland says that they actually need to give those up. And the felony review uh, uh, initiative from the state attorney's office where uh, that was supposed to ensure due process, but actually ended up subverting it further. I'm, I, I, I'm curious about how you started diving into that legal history, because I think a lot of the police historiography that's been generated recently is the work of social historians, ethnic studies um, scholars, and, you know, a lot of people coming out of African-American history, such as yourself. So, I mean, what, what possessed you, what possessed you to want to read uh, legal documents? I suppose I'm asking. Oh yeah. Well, I think one, again, going back to what I said earlier, though, I early anxiety, almost panic that I was writing a dissertation about, I wasn't using traditional archives, right. That my colleagues, my friends, you know, like my peers and grad student, my cohort, like they're going off to to, you know, a presidential library, they're looking in boxes and folders, right? And I didn't feel at first that there were boxes and folders that were speaking to my project. Now, eventually, like I said, I did find them. Um, and so I was like, well, what am I going to do to find evidence? Obviously, like the most <laughs> like simplistic, basic thing you need to do. Um, and, if, you know, mostly I was reading newspapers and I was going to uh, protest rallies and workshops of activists, which are absolutely no no less legitimate a source base than, you know, an, traditional archive. And I think I was probably a bit blinded by that need to just demonstrate that I could do kind of just like old fashioned conventional history work. Whereas no, none of my, you know, advisors or mentors were telling me I had to, it's just, I was, you know, whatever. Um, so just in the search for material related to Burge, it was like, oh, it, it became pretty clear after talking to Flint Taylor and he gave me a bunch of, um, you know, this lawyer from the people's office gives, gives me this massive trove of documents that were briefly up on a, um, an archive, a digital archive at the University of Chicago that's been, since been taken down, but I imagine it'll return one day. Um, but in a lot of these documents, you can be found elsewhere just on Google searches. Um, you know, that's where this material was coming from, right? You know, as we see, you know, I learned that lesson that obviously law, uh, you know, criminal trials, particularly ones that wind up on appeal. So death penalty cases are automatically appealed. They create just a massive trove of documents. Um, and it's not just the trial transcripts, it's all the exhibits and you just never know what you're going to find in those case files. Um, and then civil litigation also creates a massive record. And, you know, Flint Taylor in the People's Law Office expressed that as like part of the purpose. Or even says this is why we're the People's Law Office is because we know it's not just we're fighting the case for this client, right, to try to win or sometimes get a settlement or win damages, or whatever. But in the process, we, there's a discovery phase, right? So the, the 
state is forced to turn over all kinds of records. And then if they're not, you know, subject to some sort of um, judges, I'm blanking, like, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I always get the language wrong. But if it's not on, it's not sealed, right? Then the people's office would just release it. Sometimes they gave that out to activists even when they weren't supposed to or gave it to journalists so we could all see it. So they created an archive through the, the discovery phase of civil litigation. And then I was able to use that as, you know, just documentary sources. And I will say too, that probably the most exciting moments I had going through sources was um, other than Citizens Alert and the Illinois Coalition Against the Death Penalty Papers at UIC was when I finally went to the, I'm going to get this title wrong off the top of my head too, but the, you know, the clerk of the court of the county criminal court, <laughs> which is in the Daly Center downtown. And I don't know, it's like on the 11th floor, you go in there, uh, and there's a lot of private citizens in there just getting documents from theirs or their family members' cases. I don't feel like there's a whole lot of academic researchers in there, but I called some case files from a death penalty case from the 1970s and 80s, and they brought me like 15 boxes. There's no finding aids. There's no structure or order. It's just papers and bounded trial transcripts. Uh, and and I, in fact, I didn't even really use that much to to tell the history of a particular trial. It's just in that trial transcript, some lawyer goes up and, um, you know, like a prosecutor gets asked about what is felony review. And then so he describes what felony review is on the stands, you know, for the purposes of this defense attorney winning, you know, a, a point in front of a jury or a judge. But I'm gleaning just more kind of concrete information um, about how the criminal justice system worked in that time and place. Um, you get more kind of biographical material of the police, right? Because they, you know, uh, when a police officer testifies, the, the state usually begins by having them you know, explain in glowing detail how great they are as police and all the medals and accomplishments they've had. But they, they you know, they give a little more biographical detail. So if you look closer through my footnotes and probably other books that are on similar topics, you'll see that a lot of the uh, detail just comes from something that some guy said, you know, on cross-examination that's completely unrelated to the actual case. But it gives me, you know, an insight into the 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 institutions and the people involved in criminal justice in the seventies and eighties. Um, so yeah, I think I hope I answered that question. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think it's, um, one of the, one of the interesting things about this project is how you're, you're blending the kind of ethnographic participant observation sources with the, with the, uh, primary source extraction. So I suppose you can, yeah. Uh, grad student Andy can be, can be, um, vindicated that he did a good job. Uh, oh, thank you. You know, let me add one quick thing too. Uh, going back to what you said about the recent scholarship on policing and carceral state, et cetera. I also thought I kind of benefited a bit from studying a group that has been less studied, certainly not understudied, but uh, uh, is detectives, right? So a lot of the scholarship on policing focuses on, and rightfully so, on patrol officers, on special tactical units or anti-drug or anti-gang initiatives, et cetera. SWAT team, something like that. And I would say at least by historians, not necessarily by criminologists, but there's less work on detectives and a detective is a unique, you know, role. And, and so I had to go just a little bit different places than I would have. If I was writing about patrolmen, I'd be looking at different sources. So um, I really found it rewarding to spend some time with detectives. Not literally, I did not, I didn't do ethnographic uh, interviews with detectives, but I meant just in my own headspace as an historian. I mean, uh, the detective is a very unique person, 
right? Uh, and the role they play is, is special. And it's also very hidden. Um, custodial abuse by definition happens behind closed doors. So you have to get a little clever to find information about them. I think you did, you did many, many police historians a favor by diving into the, the question of a lot of the violence that happens behind closed doors that, you know, as you've written about elsewhere, can't be quantified. Thank you. That's high praise. And I, I just want I, you to know, appreciate that. And also just before I, I feel like I'd be doing a disservice if I don't mention the work of Richard A. Leo, whose Police Interrogation in American Justice, this book was just instrumental. And, and it's just, to me, it's like the gold standard book on detectives. And also, um, I don't mind saying this either, David Simon, you know, the creator and writer of HBO's The Wire and many other things. I just watched The Plot Against America the other day. I know he was a producer, a writer on that. Um, David Simon's book, Homicide, which is a popular press book, you know, kind of a expose and a page turner. That, you know, that book, it does as well as any other book I've ever read on getting at the life and personality and day-to-day career of police detectives. So if you're interested in detectives, Richard A. Leo and, uh, you know, the famous David Simon, that's the place to go. Those are great recommendations. I mean, I think that, um, I think that your choice to focus on detectives weeds or led me to kind of think about another very kind of delicate and vexed, um, narrative choice you made, you know, because you're studying detectives and, and you're studying uh, detectives who are in violent, you know, virtues and violent crimes, you spend a, a, a lot of time describing how torture survivors enter the criminal justice system, including the violent acts for which they're charged. And I think that that is another thing that sets you apart from the literature, which I think there's a lot within that, within the body of research, there's a lot of disagreement about how to approach crime. You know, many rightly criticize it as a racial category and mention that crime is a symptom of poverty and then move, move on uh, without discussing interpersonal violence. Um, more recently, I think scholars have been taking crime more seriously, acknowledging that, you know, Certain crimes, and you do mention, you know, you do mention the kind of uh, the difficulties of using crime statistics for different analytical purposes. But you know, I think you're among uh, you know a small but perhaps growing group of scholars that is trying to reckon with the kind of double bind of police violence and interpersonal violence that that um, was plaguing and, and continues to plague black communities. How did you kind of swing that in, in the body of the text without, you know, kind of, uh, well, remaining aware that, you know, people might think that you're issuing some kind of apology for police violence? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think you're, that you're really now putting your, you know, what's, what analogy you want to use, but, uh, you know, your finger on the real pulse of the greatest struggle that I had with the whole book. I mean, it, the, the two big conundrums I dealt with and lost sleep over was, how to, you know, how much to make it about Burge and, you know, how do I avoid, an, you know, looking like I'm apologizing for him, but also to what degree am I going to not just include, but actually narrate in places and sometimes in great detail, some of the criminal acts that the torture survivors were accused of committing. Uh, it's a part of the book that I expect to get or the most pushback and, and, and a place where I would probably not 
go to great lengths to defend my decision. It was a choice. Um, so to be more blunt, right? So, so or to be more explicit, what I mean by a choice, you know, when there are accounts of the Burge torture scandal where the alleged crimes of the torture victims are not included. And I think that's done for a series of ideological and political reasons that I have great sympathy for and often wholeheartedly agree with. However, there are times when I read an account of the Burge torture story where it says, you know, John Burge and his men coerced confessions or tortured confessions from over 120, however number we want to use. And I do talk about the problem with the numbers in other places. Um, you know, they coerced confessions from innocent men. They absolutely did torture confessions from innocent men, but they also tortured confessions from men who were likely guilty. And it's actually almost impossible as an academic to conclude and determine with any degree of you know, certainty whether these men were, in fact, guilty of horrific crimes like uh, you know, murders and sexual assaults and, you know, uh, probably the most famous case coming out of the Bird story was that of Andrew Wilson, who almost certainly shot and killed two police officers in winter of 1982. And I, I've rarely will I see someone um, argue that Wilson was not guilty. But of course, you got to, you know, I say that you got to start right here, right? It doesn't matter that Wilson was innocent or guilty. He did not deserve to be tortured. Torture is wrong in all case, you know, in all cases. Um, we cannot allow police to coerce confessions from anyone, no matter what they're accused of, no matter what they did. And I, I'm glad I stopped to say that because I take it as such a given uh, that sometimes if I don't say it and people don't know me or haven't read my work, haven't seen me, you know, we're like, well, why didn't he say that? Well, it's, yeah, torture's wrong. No one deserves to be tortured, including the guilty, of course. But I think if we want to, as a historian, if we want to understand what Burge and his men were doing, in most of the cases, I believe, and I try to argue persuasively in the book, that Burge and his men believed that they were coercing confessions from guilty people who did horrific things. Right, so uh, they weren't simply rounding up anyone and, and and coercing confessions. They were often rounding up people who had some direct connection to this crime, who the detectives believed, often through you know racist determinations, were inherently guilty people who were a threat to the community who need to be removed. We also know that Burgess men did sometimes round up innocent people, grab people off the streets that just matched the general description. They coerced confessions from people that they knew had no connection to the crime, and there were people who were sent to death row who almost certainly had no connection whatsoever with the crime. So th th that happens as well. But I think to understand what happens in Chicago and why the police superintendent and the state's attorney, Mayor uh, uh, Richard Daly, and then Mayor Jane Byrne and others, and even Harold Washington, why they would allow this torture regime to continue is often because of political calculations. They want to look tough on crime in a law and order era in a period where uh, crime statistics are suggestive that Chicago is suffering a uh, period of, of of heightened crime, but also because the stakeholders and the those who uh, would have the duty to hold police accountable, they believed that the torture victims deserved what they got. Journalists believe these guys got deserved what they got. Much of the general public, particularly you know white Chicagoans, while they might not be comfortable with torture, they felt that Andrew Wilson got what he deserved. You know, I quote the famous Chicago columnist Mike Royko in many ways is. Um, often on progressive sides of causes, and we could definitely debate to what degree Mike Rocco was progressive. Um, but his you had a flippant, dismissive, you know, just completely dismisses the claims that Wilson, you know, was tortured and says basically, well, you know, he's lucky he's alive. And that's because the perception from the police to the journalists to the politicians to much of just the general public of Chicago uh, understood that the, the guys that were 
alleging torture, that they had done horrible things. Um, and so to understand the way this story circulated in Chicago at the Times, I felt it was important to narrate some of the alleged crimes at the risk of playing into the hands of the opponents of the movement. So I, it, I concede that it's a risk by going into, you know, I, I, a page or two description of the brutal attack that two bird survivors performed on a family in Rogers Park in the 1980s. Um, but I feel like we can't understand the story unless we understand who the, the Mahaffey brothers were, you know, when the police rounded them up and, and abused them. Uh, but I hope I also balance that with brutal descriptions of what the police are doing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's not an easy read at times. Um, I do worry that people who I agree with politically, those who I'm actually trying to kind of win their um, respect, if not affection, who my political activism in my own life is, is aligned with theirs. I worry that I might have uh, violated some principle of theirs by detailing the alleged crimes of the survivors. But honestly, uh, I guess the way I would defend it is I felt that it was probably the most true to my role as a chronicler, right? Uh, historians are many things. Uh, and one of the things we are are chronicles of chroniclers, if that's a word, one who chronicles the past. And it, the bird story doesn't make sense if you don't describe Andrew Wilson killing those two cops. It's just, it's an incomplete story. And I hope that I did it with sensitivity. Uh, I hope that I did it where if you're a reader, you can tell that my sympathies lie with the torture survivors and their families and that I fully condemn all use of coerced confessions. Uh, and I'm proud of a, a reader's report I got from one of my anonymous reviewers who said that I was fairly objective, but you could tell at the end of the day where my sympathies lie. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I don't make any any claim to objectivity or neutrality, but I wanted to tell the story in a, in a way that wasn't openly kind of partisan or strident, but yet you could not read my book and not fully understand that I condemn torture, uh, that I support the movement, uh, you know, that um, my sympathies are with those who are trying to radically transform or eradicate policing. So I don't know if I accomplished that. I think that's up for the reader or any reviewers. Um, I'm glad you raised that. And, that, you know, frankly, I would love to be on a panel with someone who voiced a complete opposite of my view there and, and um, really went at me for including details of these two crimes. Um, I would I wouldn't say much. I think I think I would love to because, you know, that voice needs to be front and center in any discussion of my book and, and the first panel. I think that that discussion would be very productive. And I also think that this is a that we. In my own opinion, I think that you made an intellectually productive choice. I mean, it's like you said, it, it, it's it's not it's it wasn't a pleasurable thing to to reconstruct, nor is it uh, always politically expedient. But uh, it it made me think about the 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 wonderful feature from I think a year or two ago in New York Times Magazine about Ruth Wilson Gilmore who made the criticism uh, in her conversations with the author that the the kind of early or like first wave of the 2010s kind of mass incarceration literature, you know, New Jim Crow and the kind of waves that came after that focused too much on nonviolent offenses at the to the point where social reality was somewhat obscured. 
So I always interject too. I mean, this idea of how do we write about crime when we're writing about policing, particularly when we're writing books that are critical of policing and try to advance social justice today. Um, I think there's many different ways to do it. I, I, I don't claim that my way was the best. Uh, you know, I was thinking of a, a colleague and a friend of mine, Max Felco Cantor, who wrote uh, Policing Los Angeles, came out, uh, I think, last year on you know, UNC Press. He says somewhere that stays stuck with me in his uh, introduction, where he, he basically says, I, I'm not going to write about crime <laughs> in a lot here. And he said, and he defends that decision. And, and I was persuaded by him um, that, well, the crimes narrative is the dominant narrative, right? If you want to look at like race policing and crime in Los Angeles, like outside of academia, that is a story of crime. That's what's the front pages. That's what television and media and all kinds of other things are harping on. So he's like, so here's a book where like the reader's coming into it, knowing that there's a lot of violent crime happening in black communities in Los Angeles. But that's, you know, that's not the point of this book. And I thought that he handled that very well in maybe one sentence or two. Um, I don't know if that satisfied all the readers. Um, but I, so I think academics like yourself and others that are writing about these issues, uh, we don't really know yet, like the best way to do this. And there's not going to be a consensus. Um, but I do think that there's a place to talk about crime, but it just, it has all these political calculations and risks that, you know, maybe some academics don't worry about. Although I think most do, but I certainly do, right? Because you know, I didn't write this book just to, to uh, you know, get tenure. I hope, I hope that works. <laughs> we'll see. But you know, I care about this stuff, and it's not just like a neutral exercise. Um, so you know, I lost a lot of sleep over how to formulate certain things, but that's rewarding too. And I think that's what's kind of cool about talking to you right now. And I, and I hope other people who listen to this that work on similar projects, like they're going to nod their head and be like, "Yeah, I've had a lot of the same." conundrums. And even if they think I handled it wrong, they'd be like, well, that's, that's what we're doing, right? As historians, we're, we're discussing how to talk about and write about this stuff in a responsible I way. I share your sympathy with historical narratives that want to push back against the, the hegemonic focus on, on crime, rhetorical sleight of hands to excuse um, police violence. But I think one thing that the focus on some of the interpersonal violence uh, allows you to do is illustrate how much of an uphill battle the the, the movement for accountability was. I mean, you it, it's clear after journalists have talked about the murder of Chicago police officers and have illustrated in vivid detail all this violence that there's going to be public apathy at best, antipathy at worst towards people who are supporting and advocating for people who occupy kind of the most um, despised positions in society, just on the level of of kind of narrative discovery in a time where there was a lot of middle-class reformism, like you said, kind of these mealy-mouthed reforms, it was a big deal for people to stand up and reject, uh, you know, reject good victimhood and reject the innocence paradigm as you describe it. Um, and I don't think that could have been illustrated as well if you had kind of shied away from the details of the of the alleged crimes. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm still, even now, I'm like staring off to the distance. <laughs> like, oh man, could I have done this differently? And yeah, I mean, it's it, it's 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 a an ongoing internal conversation I'm having. I'm glad we're talking about it now. Um, it's weird to have the book done and out, so it's done. And I'm not going to. <laughs> revise it but i mean that's the that's the pleasure of doing this work right it's just a, it's it's so endlessly important and fascinating um because it's because it's so important it, it has to transcend the fascinating right it's not just this is 
interesting. Like it's just too important to get it wrong, but we're gonna sometimes. You know, you mentioned Andrew Davis and perhaps some of you know some of your some of your actors talking to you about about the book or having read it. And I'm less less intellectually curious and more personally curious if you've heard from any kind of contemporary organizers uh if they've if they've read any of 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 this research i haven't other than people that i'd already talked to uh so i have not uh i'm trying to think uh well the book's only been out for a couple months um man i hope uh, people listen to this you know um marketing a book is a particular challenge at any time but I think for academics like myself who are more um, immediately engaged with like teaching my summer classes right now and navigating how to teach online for the first time and all, all kinds of other more immediate things that the book was completed for me so long ago that now it comes out and it's like, okay, don't forget to, uh, to indulge this necessity to kind of market. And also I think a lot of academics don't have a, a natural self-promotion bone in their body. I mean, some do, uh, for better, for worse. And some are really good at it. Um, you know, as you spend so much of your time writing a book like this in, in the archives and at your office, or for me, I was always at coffee shop writing complete isolation, going through documents, et cetera. And now it's like, Oh, I'll make sure you're doing interviews and marketing the book. Um, and then on top of that, the challenges of marketing something like this during a the pandemic when bookstores are closed and conferences are canceled and, Speaking engagements at colleges and universities aren't happening. Um, so I've yet to really hear a whole lot from people who've read it, but I'm optimistic that, um, you know, it'll take some time. The book came out in April, but it was actually a distribution center was closed for a few weeks into April. So I think a lot of people are just now getting it. I've noticed more people sending me texts or social media posts saying, hey, your book just came in the mail. Um, you know, and also I think there's a lag, you know, how many people are going to grab this book and put it at the top of their pile of books they have to read, you know? Um, so I think it will take some time. I certainly hope that it gets in the hands of some organizers and activists who either love it and are find some inspiration in it or those who have problems with it and have the kind of initiative and courage to reach out to me and tell me where they think that I got something wrong. Because uh, although the book's done, my interest in this field is still in, you know, in its infancy. So, you know, there'll be more in the future. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that one one advantage to slapping Burge's name on the book is that in addition to, you know, staking out turf or whatever, there are still, I think, many people in Chicago, regardless of their level of political engagement, um, that I think only know the rough outlines of the story. Uh, so, I mean, even, you know, I, I, um, I'm from Chicago myself and, you know, you kind of, you, you hear this very canned narrative about, about what a terrible man. So, uh, hopefully this will, um, kind of, you know, make it into some, maybe, maybe make it into, into some block club, block club, uh, book circles and, and, and clear up some of the details about, about what exactly enabled that, that, that yeah. terrible individual. Yeah. Sure, I mean, I think it's, it's a big thing. Like, I, I think it's just a big story or kind of almost, you know, approaching the level of, of like 
myth locally. So I think at, at least people in Chicago will, and, and I mean other other cities who have dealt with this, other places that have dealt with this. Yeah, problem. it feels like there might be an, uh, an audience in Chicago. I think also the, the, the part of that reparations package that the city council passed in 2015 that was you know pushed uh, on them by activists who did an incredible job was that the, the requirement of the Burge curriculum to be taught in eighth and tenth grade schools. So I think there might be you know a market for um, school teachers to use elements of the book maybe in the classroom. And I'd also say that um, I hope that other people also read Flint Taylor's book, The Torture Machine, that came out on Haymarket Press last year. I mean, I think that uh, my book and his book complement one another. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some material out there for those interested in Burge that, you know, 10 years ago, there wasn't as much. I mean, John Conroy's articles are, are still available. Uh, the Chicago Reader, you Google John Conroy, John Burge, you're going to get plenty of more kind of bite-sized um, really brilliant stuff there too. So there's plenty out there. Um, but I'm, I'm satisfied on a personal kind of career professional level to have, to have that book exist or my book, you know? So I hope that it, it has some, some life in the city for those interested in learning about Burge. I think we're getting close to ending and I'm very curious about what you're working on now. Sure. So uh, I'm just now entering the very earliest stages where I haven't done really any archival research on a second project that is so early on that it's likely to evolve perhaps even in so radical directions that it's not anything what I'm saying today. But my next project is focusing on something related to the intersection of race and missing persons. Um, I'm particularly interested in the way that African-American communities uh, helped uh, locate missing loved ones where they didn't feel they could access help from the state or that they didn't want to invite the police or state actors into their lives when a, a daughter, brother, sister, cousin, husband kind of just went missing. And I got into this, I think the two things that inspired me to look into this um, is one, just looking at African-American newspapers in the Jim Crow era, like the Pittsburgh Courier or the Chicago Defender, they often had a missing person section uh, where you know people could write in kind of like a personal ad saying they're trying to locate someone that's, that's gone missing. And you say, well, you know, what other black institutions were involved in helping people find loved ones that have gone, you know, missing? Um, and so, you know, civil rights organizations, fraternal organizations, um, even black funeral homes and um, uh, insurance companies, right, that uh, were engaged in locating someone who has gone missing. Uh, and then the other point that I think what I might use as a narrative hook to begin this book, if I'm lucky enough to get that far with it. It's looking at the Freedom Summer murders in 1964. You know, you have Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, right, go missing. They're missing all summer. They find their bodies. Uh, and I think anyone who's read about Freedom Summer is very familiar with this story. I'll just briefly mention, right, when they, when the, you know, with two white civil rights workers uh, missing, uh, great political pressure on President Johnson, who sends cadets from the, a local naval academy to, to drag, drag the rivers and to, you know, scour the swamps and the jungle or the, the swampland of, Mississippi. And of course, as you've probably read, you know, they find like eight bodies of African-American men, of which only two were ever really identified. I'll, I should, I'll double check and make sure I'm right about that. But I'm fairly certain that most of those eight bodies were never identified. And I read uh, last year, uh, James Baldwin's, I hope I get this title right, The Evidence of Things Not Seen, where he's writing about the Atlanta child murders. Uh, and, and he publishes this in the mid 1980s. And he talks about friends of his that were helping look for the Freedom Summer civil rights workers and 
June and July of 1964, they find those bodies and Baldwin writes in this essay, says, well, what the hell, who are the rest of these bodies, right? Because, you know, he's like, they pull one body out of the river, they go, oh, that's not Shorner, that's not Cheney, that's not Goodman, and they throw them back. Obviously, they're not literally throwing it back, but they grab the next body, oh, that's not that. And Baldwin just, you know, I think he writes in all italics at this point, he's like, well, who, who are these other people? You know, how is it that, you know, all these, we could, we could go, you know, wandering through the woods in the deep south, and we're just going to find black people who were killed with, you know, so, you know, so I'm interested in who were those other eight bodies, right? Um, the people that knew those people must have gone to great lengths to find them, but they didn't do it through the police or through the uh, state actors. So I want, but it's going to be difficult because how do I get evidence of, you know, it's like a Baldwin's title, the evidence of things not seen. Well, if, I, if I tackle a project that has to deal with missing persons, I'm definitely going to hit up with a, a problem of sources, but I'm, I'm really drawn to this issue. Uh, and I think I might write a chapter also on efforts by the Combahee River Collective uh, in Boston in the late 70s as they um, raised alarm about Black women who were gone, had gone missing and, and uh, were murdered. Um, and so that, you know, I might just do a series of case studies. But again, I'm very early in this. Um, this is half-baked. I would love to, uh, and I will be workshopping this with people, uh, brainstorming. And, you know, these books take quite a long time. And I think from the first book, you have that structure of the dissertation and you have advisors and you have graduate student workshops, uh, et cetera. Um, but for the second book, I feel a little, a little untethered from a formal structure and process. Um, but on the other hand, I have experience of already written a book. So I'm excited. We'll see. I think the fear for me is that I just get so caught up in, teaching and the routines of life and I get tenure and then I let my scholarship lag, but uh, I'm promising myself not to do that. Well, I certainly look forward to reading whatever comes out of those two projects. I want to thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me. Oh, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate the obvious uh, energy you put into reading the book and coming up with these questions. I, uh, I'm flattered that you spent so much time with it. So thank you. <laughs>